We're going to be moving, staying with this theme, the trembling theme. A wonderful word, by the way, trembling. I um, teach in Germany in a university in Bochum, which is um, not far from Wuppertal. And one of the great things about living in Bochum is that we're 20 minutes away from the Tanztheater, uh, Wuppertal, the Pina Bausch Tanztheater. Pina Bausch, some of you will know, one of the great modern choreographers. She died maybe five years ago. And um, if you've never seen the film, have any of you seen Pina, the film? If you've not, you should go out and find it. Remarkable. Pina, P-I-N-A, Pina, the first name of this great choreographer, Pina Bausch. Pina Bausch um, created a whole new experience of, of dance, which she called dance theater. And we're going to see in a few moments a, a small part, the end of a long piece called Vollmond, or Full Moon, which is her version of imagining what it might be like for the moon to come forth, the full moon, out of the chaos of a storm. And so what we won't see in the clip is about 20 minutes of a frenetic dance of um, dancers in gray or black, men and women, in a full rainstorm on a stage that's completely black with the exception of one large black stone. And this clip that we'll see comes at the end of the storm as one of the dancers emerges out of the darkness in a, a, a fabulously bright pink outfit and dances the moon's dance the moon as light coming out of the darkness. It's a beautiful piece. We'll only see a little bit of it. But if you've not seen the film Pina, heartily, it was done as an act of by Wim Wenders after her death as a, an homage to, to this remarkable woman. And by the way, the Pina Bausch troupe still exists. They come to London regularly. So if you see Pina Bausch, um, do what you need to do to get tickets. B-A-U-C-H, B-A-U-S-C-H, B-A-U-S-C-H, Bausch. Trembling in the dark, the image of trembling we had in the last poem. And at the end of each session, I'll give you the poems. You have the, the first poem, poems we looked at, the excerpt and the piece. In the dark interval, they come trembling and join as one. Some of you were... Somebody said there was a talk here recently on on Teyar, right? Oh, she was just here. That's it. Yeah. This is this is Teyar de Jardin, one of the great scientists uh, of the 20th century, paleontologist, was um, silenced by the Vatican and spent most of his life in China uh, doing research and writing theological books, remarkable books, still remarkable books. If you were here for Earthly King's book, you know something about the genius of this remarkable man. You can see something in his face. This was in the anti-modernist period. And the whole notion that science had an independent role was something unacceptable, uh, that science had to bow down to the revelations of the church, 
and Teilhard had no arguments with the revelations of the church. He just felt that it had no bearing on scientific knowledge and that scientific knowledge could be a way of understanding the, the immense mystery of, um, of, of life, of reality. Yeah? Of course, yeah. And there are places in Teilhard where he recognizes this too. He's using the conventions of, um, of the tradition. God must in some way or other make room for himself, herself, follow, hollowing us out and empty us, emptying us if he is finally to penetrate into us. And in order to assimilate us in him, God must break the molecules of our being so as to recast and remodel us. Just hold that thought that in some ways the darkness, the breaking apart creates the possibility of light coming forth. This is the theme of the day and we'll follow, see how this traces out. This is the image of the dancer we're going to see in a moment. Um, you can see that the stage is wet. In fact, it had been raining for 25 minutes on the stage. Pretty uh, complicated thing to pull off in a modern theater. One of the remarkable, tenacious, uh, bits of tenacious genius of Pina Bausch. This is after the rainstorm, after the headache dance has proceeded.
full moon, full moon, remarkable sequence. It's not quite finished the dance, but you can feel the kind of, um, if you saw the beginning 25 minutes or so of this frenetic storm that's happening with um, these characters dressed in dark gray and black, men and women, rain pouring down, and suddenly the rain stops and this luminous woman appears and begins this dance of light coming forth from the darkness, from the storm, kind of trembling in the dark. Pina Bausch. This is one of the other texts from the Bible. We'll have three texts today. We've heard two already from Genesis and from 2 Corinthians, and this will be the, the last of the three from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 21. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This becomes really one of the most, um, a kind of primal text for both Jewish and Christian writers on the spiritual life, on the religious life, on the spiritual life, up until the modern period. Great rabbinic tradition of uh, writing about Moses when he's closest to God can see nothing. He encounters God in darkness. And this text begins to open up a way of thinking about the question of God's presence or absence, God's visibility or invisibility, our awareness of God or our lack of awareness of God, that just shapes the tradition, these traditions of both Jewish and Christian writings uh, up until the beginnings of modernity, this single text from the book of Exodus. We're going to encounter one commentary on this text by a Greek theologian uh, living in the fourth century of the Common Era, um, Gregory of Nyssa, part of a luminous group of theologians, family uh, related to each other, and intimately involved in creating a new theological style, I would say. This is his commentary, uh, his book that he wrote called The Life of Moses. Philo had written a book on Moses' life, the great Jewish exegete philosopher uh, of the first century of the Common Era. And Gregory follows several hundred years later with this remarkable book, The Life of Moses. What does it mean that Moses entered the darkness and then saw God in it. What does it mean that Moses entered the darkness and then saw God in it? But you, can, you can't see in the darkness. This is the, the deliberate irony that Gregory's working with. How can you see God in the darkness? Scripture teaches that as the mind progresses and through an even greater and more perfect diligence, comes to apprehend reality as it, as it approaches more nearly to contemplation, it sees more clearly what of the divine nature is uncontemplated. So for Gregory, 
and in this tradition, we see God more clearly in darkness, not in light. We sense God more clearly as absence and not as presence. We hear God more profoundly in silence and not in language. That the, the nature of the divine bends back our expectations from our ordinary experience. We need a second kind of vision, a new kind of seeing. It goes on. This is the only long text we'll read today, and I'll give you a copy of it later. For leaving behind everything that is observed. But what the intelligence thinks it sees. Beautiful phrase. To leave everything that we have sensed, that we've comprehended through our, sense, our senses, through our bodily senses, and leaving behind everything that the intelligence thinks it sees, it keeps on penetrating deeper until by the mind's yearning for understanding, it gains access to the invisible and incomprehensible, and there it sees God. We're not quite finished, but we're deep. What's, what's happening here? It's a complicated phrase. It's a complicated commentary, I realize. What's he trying to say here? That everything that we see with our eyes, everything we've experienced with our bodies, everything we've thought about with our minds, doesn't bring us closer to God. Or at least to the true God. It might tell us things about the divine nature, but God will not be held captive in those things. Leaving behind everything that is observed. Not only what sense comprehends, but what the intelligence, what the mind thinks it sees. It keeps on penetrating deeper until by the mind's yearning for understanding, gains access to the invisible and incomprehensible, and there it sees God. This is the true knowledge of what is sought. This is the seeing which consists in not seeing. Because that which is sought transcends knowledge, being separated on all sides by incomprehensibility as by a kind of darkness, when therefore Moses grew in knowledge, he declared that he had seen God in the darkness. That is, when he had then come to know that what is divine is beyond all knowledge and all comprehension. For as the text says, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. This is the true knowledge of what is sought. This is the seeing which consists in not seeing. Because that which we seek transcends our knowing. Being separated on all sides by unknowing, by incomprehensibility, as by a kind of darkness. What's, what's, what's he saying? Yes, it doesn't happen to you. It happens in you. It doesn't happen to you. Because darkness 
can tear us apart. It can overwhelm us. It can suffocate us. It can stifle us. Let's be honest. We have psychiatric clinics for people for whom darkness overcame them. And it's a horrible thing. This is no sentimental reverie in darkness. The darkness is a strong power. And if we only let darkness happen to us, we will never, never grow in our lives. No, you're right. It's what's happening in us, through us, in this experience that really matters. And for Gregory, this story, by the way, the life of Moses, became not quite a bestseller. They didn't really have bestsellers in the fourth century. But it was widely circulated because he told the story of the great kind of heroic figure of the ancient tradition, Moses, the way that interpreted the spiritual experience of contemporary people. Jews had been doing this for hundreds of years before Gregory got to the story. So he's in a tradition, in a commentary tradition. But what's so startling, and for me so important, because we've often in our society, and including our church society, we, we don't know what to do with darkness. We don't like darkness. We, we push it away. There it is. And these tools won't get us to the deepest place. They will not bring us to where we really yearn to go, which we actually don't know about. That's the point of Gregory. We don't know about it. We, we feel it, what we're yearning for, but we don't know about it. We can't, I can't express it to you in language. I can't describe it to you in words. But I know, I know it from the absence I feel, from the yearning of what I long for and don't have yet. This is Gregory's point. We're separated on all sides by incomprehensibility as by a kind of darkness. Because that which we are seeking transcends our knowing. That which we're yearning for is beyond our language. It's beyond our categories of understanding. It's beyond psychological categories. It's beyond empirical categories. But we know that there's something there that takes us into this dark space. And this is really the theme. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We, we have to to grow. We have to to grow as human beings. Jung knew this so deeply. What I said about psychology, I should frame that. At its best, psychology understands this. Jung was so aware of where, where does our true shaping of our life come in our dreams, in the things that come from the unconscious, not from the conscious mind, not from the thinking mind, not from the organizing mind, the strategic mind. So important. We can't get through a day without it. How do you make tea in the morning? You have to, well, you probably don't think about it anymore. You don't think about it. But what do you do to make tea? You have to get up, you have to boil the water, you have to put the tea bag in, you get the milk out. All these rational things that become habits for us, right? But what we're talking about here is nothing that we can organize in our rational mind, in the frontal lobe, this big part of our brain. No, Jung knew that the transformation that happens in dreams, that comes to us in dreams, comes from the deep, the, the primal part of the brain the hypothalamus, the back part of the brain, the, the hot brain, what they call the hot brain, back here. Feel your, put your hand up on your neck. The reptilian brain. It's the reptilian brain, which the very word reptilian, you think, oh, that's so primitive. Well, it is primitive, but it's primal in that sense. 
And it moves us beyond the categories of trying to understand. This is really the heart of this second segment, which is a paradox for me to say. How do we move beyond? I'm telling you this. You know, I'm, I'm describing this to you. How do we move beyond our understanding? Well, Rilke finds a way of describing this in poetic form, which may make some sense. In the dark interval, how do we, what happens in this dark interval? That's the question for the second segment. And this is one of my most beloved poems. Ich liebe die dunklen Stunde meines Wesens. I love the dark hours of my being. I don't really want to say that a lot of the time. <laughs> and I'm sure you don't either. I mean, most of us survive the dark hours of our being, right? I do. I don't want them. I, cer I certainly don't generally love them, at least not when I'm in them. I want, I want release. I want escape. I want to manage them. I want light. I want something better, right? I mean, this, this is, it's an unnatural feeling or an unnatural sentiment that Rilke begins this poem with. I love the dark hours of my being. Now, that's not the end of the poem, but it's a pretty strange beginning. Because right off the bat, something in you and me says, no, I don't think I'm going there. I don't want to go there. I'd rather not. I'd rather not go there. I want to be delivered. Give me a drug. Give me a therapy. Give me a workshop. Give me a day at the Meditatio Center to get me out of this, because I don't like it. Right? Well, the poem just begins there. I love the dark hours of my being, for they deepen my senses. Now we're starting to get somewhere. And this, you know, is true. The most difficult time, think of a very difficult time in your life. You don't have to talk about it to your neighbor. You don't have to make a public confession. But just take a moment and think of a very, very difficult time. Probably involves a loss of something you held dear. A friend, a parent, a child, a lover, a colleague. Where you lost your orientation, you, you didn't know you could go on. I love the dark hours of my being, for they deepen my senses. How do they deepen your senses? How do they deepen your experience? How do the difficult times for you deepen who you are? What would you say? Maybe you're in one. Or maybe it's recent. They throw you out of ordinary every day. Yep. Yeah, they throw you out of the ordinary, manageable world. Right? Something's happening. Something profound is happening. We don't know if we'll survive sometimes. But we know that something is happening. Yes. We're searching. Yeah, when something is taken from you that you presume would always be there, something deep, something profound, and it's taken away, you're left with a longing. You're left with a longing. And you're coming out of 
Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. It can happen. It, it, it's not automatic. Again, it doesn't happen to us. That happens in us. That happens in you, Margaret, because you, you're holding on to something that's carrying you through, to a light you hope to find that comes out of the darkness. And I think that phrase is maybe you know, the whole, worth the whole day of coming, just that in our tradition, in our spiritual tradi tradition, the solution to darkness is not finding a way of shining light in. It's staying with the darkness and finding the light that wants to come out of that. That's it. I couldn't have told you this 20 years ago. I had no idea. I, read, I knew all these texts. I didn't know what they were about. I, could, I taught them. I taught seminary students, graduate students. Gregory of Nyssa, we read Gregory of Nyssa. I didn't know what it was about. I could explain it brilliantly in an academic, intellectual way. This is about, this is about negative theology. It's about where theology reaches its limit and the true knowing is beyond all of our organized thinking. But you know, a 25, 30 young professor, you're organizing your thinking. You're, and you're trying to organize other people's thinking. And it's an utterly ridiculous attempt and silly and necessary somehow, you know? It, and it will be a life. That's exactly the point. That if you don't know this, when you crash up against the darkness, you, in your life or in someone else's, you won't know what to do. You'll look for a, light, for a light bulb. You'll look for some way to illumine, like Job's friends. In them, as in old letters, I find my daily life already lived in sacred words, so soft and subdued. We're only going to begin with this little poem. You'll take it with you and live with it beyond this precious time we have together. I discovered when I was reading this poem with undergraduates about 10 years ago that most of them had never received a letter. It's true. You ask anybody under the age of about 25 and they've never received a letter. A few in the class said that they had, and I said, well, I know who sent it to you. And they were baffled. I said, well, it was either your grandmother or your grandfather. It's probably your grandmother. And I was right, you know, of a generation that still writes letters to grandchildren. My grandparents still write, my parents still write letters to my children who are young adults. They love them. They're the only letters they get. I mean, do you get letters? Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. It's a miracle. It's a miracle when a letter comes through the box, a real letter written with someone's human hand, isn't it? I mean, you just, so take note, write letters. <laughs> save you save them, of course, of course, of course. You can't save an email. As important as it might be, it's not the same. So Rilke here, in them, in the dark hours, as in old letters, the ones you've saved, those are the ones you've saved for years, maybe, right? Generations, Generations maybe. My daily life, my experiences are there. I'm not the first. I mean, you could say, what's your right? I'm not the first. I, I'm not the first to have this experience, right? When something shattering happens and a friend takes time to write a long letter to you, you realize there's a connection. I'm not alone. They know what I'm going through, maybe a little. 
I find my daily life already lived. It's, someone else has experiences. In sacred words, in fromme Worte is the German, in pious or sacred words, so soft and subdued, not the screaming language of advertisements, but the tender language of consolation. Right? That's what we yearn for. From them, from these dark hours, from them. This is one of my absolute favorite lines of poetry, period. I've come to know I have room for a second life, timeless, and ein zweites Leben, zeitlos und breit. Zweit, Zeit, breit. It's wonderful, that opening of the sounds in German. From the dark hours, I learned something. That I can, how would you put it? What is a second life? It's not reincarnation. What, what is he talking about? Your inner life. A different level, yeah. You, can, you realize you can, sh there's a shape to your life that's not finished with the darkness, the dark hours. That's exactly it, yes. Love. The world wants to, that, the lines remember from the beginning, the world wants to flourish in love. You do too. And so do those around you who may be immensely distant from you through anger, through frustration, through whatever, confusion. They want to flourish in love too. From these dark hours, we come to know and I, the word, the German, it's one of Rilke's favorite words, Raum, I have room. I mean, you can't say it quickly, as quickly in German, Raum. Huh? Say it for us, Margaret. Say it for us. Raum. I mean, it takes room, you can say room, room. But the German, you have to open your mouth bigger. Raum. Huh? Your lips have to do a lot of action in this word to get it right. From them, I've come to know that I have room for a second life, timeless and wide, timeless and wide, big, spacious, spacious. It's a big life. Your life is a big life. And precisely in the moments when we feel those dark hours of our being, we don't feel that at all. We feel how small we are. Somebody said, what's the image of creation? I feel so small, of course, with the immensity of the waters. The wind brooding over the face of the deep. You feel like if you're there at all, you're swimming for your life. And you don't know if you're going to make it. And sometimes, no, this is an amazing ending. Sometimes I'm like the tree, ripe and rustling, which stands above the dead boy's grave. Sorry, let me get rid of that. and gathers him in its warm roots. What's going on here? Where is this tree? Sometimes I'm like the tree, ripe and rustling. It's a full tree which stands above the dead boy's grave and gathers him in its, where, where is this tree? Cemetery, yeah. It's a cemetery. It's 
above a grave. Fulfilling the dream he lost in sorrows and songs. Yes, I think so. He doesn't ever say it, but he's like a tree. Remember the last poem? I'm like a tree standing before what I once was. This is a few poems later. That boy is, in a sense, gone. And he'd lost his dream in sorrows and songs. It's a remarkably poignant phrase or image. It is, I think, Rilke speaking about his second life, which came after a horrific childhood, a horrific childhood. I mean, he called it later, described it to the psychologist, Ellen Kay, Swedish psychologist, as one long prolonged torment. Parents who hated each other. He was given the name René, could have been a boy's name, but it was meant as a girl's name because his mother lost a little girl. 14 months before he was born. She actually wanted only a girl. And um, she never came to terms with the fact that he wasn't this little girl. His parents, when the marriage ended, and when they separated, sent him to a military school, which for someone like Rilke was uh, an absolute signal of death, really. And he struggled mightily. He, he survived for a number of years and finally begged his parents to come home because he was sure he couldn't survive. And, and he, he was allowed to come home. He never finished school. He went to university. He was admitted and took occasional, sat in on occasional lectures, but never really finished any public schooling of any kind, higher education or even primary education. And here's this image of Rilke as a 20-year-old now Falling, having fallen in love for the first time, profoundly in love, and finding his life opened again from a time of terrible darkness that he sees that he has a chance, a chance. It's an amazing image, isn't it? The tree gathering him in its warm roots, right? in the darkness of the earth, taking the boy's life, nourished by that life, bringing forth into the tree, into this life that continues on. This is what he calls here a second life. Timeless wide. This is what the deal is. This is what it, this is what the deal is. Yeah, this is what the deal is. This is what the deal is. Let's bring him down to earth. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, I mean these, the first poems in this sequence of poems, sixty-seven poems, and a long verse letter in the original version. The tree image comes up over and over again, and it's it's a it's an image of what can happen 
out of death, something new life comes forth, right? A tree lifts its grandeur into the sky from the hummus of the earth, from the dust and dirt and dark moisture of the underground. And this is this poem, that even for each of us in our lives, in the darkest moment, that it's not finished. It's not finished. It's not finished. Yes, thou hast made me endless and thou hast made me finite at the same time. Made me in the finitude of my suffering and of my joy, of my darkness and of my light. I mean, for Rilke here, this is a different image now. He's moving from the image of darkness and light to the image of death and life, that out of death comes life. Out of defeat comes a new, comes a new possibility, can come. Again, it doesn't happen to us this way. It happens in us and through us. This is where the resources of our tradition are so important because they connect us to something that experientially is true. Or to put it another way, we have to find this out, not in thinking about it, but in actually seeing that darkness, entering, holding onto it, and waiting for the light to come forth, which we don't know will happen. We don't. There's no guarantee. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not a mechanical thing. The boy has died. The boy has died. Absolutely. We're going to come back to this very theme in the next poem after lunch. How do we integrate that child in us that has to, in a way, find a new form, a new life, but that also has to be present? You know, it's not as if we eliminate, as if we erase it. No. no what do we do with it? And this marvelous insight from Teilhard. God must in some way or other make room for himself. How does God do this? I think most profoundly in shattering us. That's Teilhard's view, right? If he's finally to empty us, penetrate into us, he has to hollow us out and empty us. Break us apart. Break apart the molecules of our being so as to recast and remodel us. That's the genius of Teilhard. And in a way, it's the genius of our inner life. It's we have this amazing treasure, but it's in an earthen vessel, as Paul said, right? It's in an earthen vessel. It can be utterly destroyed, un, un, irremediably destroyed if we let it, or that breaking can be the place where the seed, who said it's the seed planted deep in the soil that can come forth anew. There's a marvelous image from the uh, a natural image, which I think Tehard must have known about, although I don't know he ever wrote about it, the sequoia tree. You know the sequoia trees. Have you seen them? Incredible. Incredible. We have them in California. Um, where have you seen them? In California? Sorry? Yes, they've been, they're growing. There's one in, just down the road from us in Germany where they've been planted. They're only 80 years old. They're young. They grow 800, 900, 1,000 years. But you know what, what it is about the seeds? The seeds, what do the seeds need to, to grow? No, fire. They need fire. They, they're so hard. The, water will not break them open. 
So when a forest fire goes through a redwood forest, it's the only hope the forest has of replenishing. They have to be burned open. It's an incredible image. The sequoia seed can only be released by being burned open. And of course, the, 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 the forest is destroyed. But that's the only hope for new sequoias to come up. Let's leave it with that image. We'll have lunch together, and we'll gather again at 2 o'clock. I'll give you the texts that we've looked at today. Um, or just come up and grab one.